David and Goliath is one of the best known stories in the whole Bible. David and Ishbi Benob, uh, not quite so much. Uh, but I, I know that, that even some of the boys and girls here do know this story. Uh, you've heard of Ishbi Benob before uh, because I've told you before that there, there wasn't just one giant who tried to kill David, but there were two. Uh, the first giant, of course, we know was called Goliath, uh, and that was when David was still pretty young. Uh, but here, much later on in David's life, we have this second giant uh, who tries to kill him called Ishbi Benob. And in fact, the eight verses that we're going to be looking at tonight contain not just one giant, not just two giants, not just three giants, but four giants. One of whom was Goliath's brother, another of whom had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. But how is this relevant to us in the week ahead if we're not planning on fighting any giants? Well, I I trust that we'll all see its relevance as we look at these verses under three headings this evening. And we see firstly how God equips his servants to fight his battles God equips his servants to fight his battles. In the verses in front of us tonight, God's kingdom is under threat. Uh, We see that particularly in verse 17, where David's men tell him that he's not to go out with them in battle anymore, lest the lamp of Israel be quenched. Uh, Their logic is that if David is killed, then it's curtains for the kingdom. But just before we dive into the details of these last eight verses of the chapter, let's not think they're completely unrelated to what happens in the first half of the chapter. Because in both halves of 2 Samuel 21, God's kingdom is under threat. The chapter starts with a three-year famine. And that's just as much a a threat to the survival of the people than any giant is. What's the reason for the famine? Well, quite simply, it's sin. Uh, The sin of King Saul, but sin he had committed as a representative of the people. We tend to assume that threats to the church come only from the outside. Uh, Perhaps we think of our new first minister, the author of a a hate crime bill, uh, which could so easily be used against Christians. And we're, we're, we're right to be concerned about these things, attacks and potential attacks from outside the church. And yet almost double of this chapter is spent on a threat from inside compared to a threat from outside. Uh, The disobedience of God's professed people does more damage than any outside threat. And so I just wanted to flag that up at the beginning uh, this evening. Uh, What we're looking at tonight is part of a two-part a, a two-part uh, two picture of attacks on the church attacks on the kingdom of God uh, the focus here is on attacks from the outside but it's only half the picture uh, but but we do come now to the second part of this chapter and we want to focus firstly on how God equips his servants to fight his battles And really the, the question we're asking here is when it comes to our service of God, are, 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 are we to think of it as something, is it all God does? Is it, is it all 
what we do? Uh, do we both play a role? How does it work in our service of God? Uh, look for a moment at the final uh, verse of the chapter. Uh, how this section is summarized in verse 22. Speaking of the giants who were killed, it says, These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now that is interesting. Uh, we're told that they fell by the hand of David as well as by the hand of his servants. But how many giants did David kill here? The answer is actually zero. Uh, and yet because David is king and because those fighting for him are his servants, the victory is credited to David as well. And is that not even more the case with, with us uh, and with our King Jesus Christ? We fight for him, uh, but any victories that we gain are credited to him. He tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you are to do nothing. Does that mean we, we are to do nothing? Uh, not at all. In the parables of the talents, Jesus condemns those who would bury their talents in the ground. And then just before he ascends back up into heaven, he, he, he commissions his church to take the gospel to the nations. And they're going to be empowered and equipped for that when, when he sends out the Holy Spirit from the day of Pentecost onwards. So, so we're not to sit on our hands far from it. There can be a defeatist attitude that says, well, people are so hostile and we're just so small that there's no point. When we know from the story of Gideon that bigger numbers can be more of a hindrance than smaller numbers. When we have examples like Jonathan, whose rallying cry was, come, let us go up to the garrison of the Philistines. It, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. A defeatist attitude is unworthy of Christians who've had the Holy Spirit poured out on them. So we're not to, to sit back. We're to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. But at the same time, we're to remember that all our ability to do anything for him comes from him. That whatever he calls us to do, the reason that we're able to do it is that we do it through Christ who gives us strength. Just as we are to work out our own salvation, knowing that it is God who works in us. Work out your own salvation, knowing that it is God who works in you. Whatever we achieve, our mindset must always be that of the Apostle Paul. It was not I, but the grace of God that was, it, that was within me. So any good we do, anything we accomplish, is to be attributed to God. Not just because that's the, the humble Christian thing to say, but because it's actually true. Because apart from him, we really can do nothing. But the fact that it's all attributed to David, or at least partly attributed to David, in the end, it doesn't stop these men going out and fighting. As the one who had trained them, as the one who had equipped them, David rightly shares the honour. 
now I, I don't know much about curling, uh, but it seems uh, the same uh, with the way that you have four people in a curling team, but the team is known by the name of the skip. Uh, so you have Team Muirhead, Team Moat, and so on. And David, you could say, is the skip. He, he's the head, he's the one they're fighting for, uh, because he's the nation's representative. And that's true in a far greater way of what we do for Jesus. Because he isn't just our leader. He, he doesn't simply equip us and encourage us. He actually works through us. He could do it all without us, but he's chosen to use us. Uh, Richard Sibbs puts it so well when he says, Though Christ has undertaken this victory, yet he accomplishes it by training us up to fight his battles. Yes, it's his victory, but he accomplishes it by training us up to fight his battles. Now David here needed his men to fight for him. He would have died if they didn't. Jesus, on the other hand, doesn't need us. The idea that, that Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work today, it, it makes him sound fairly pathetic. Jesus doesn't need us, and yet he has chosen to use us. A great verse which sums this all up, uh, you might want to look it up, it's 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, it sums this up, it applies it to our life in the church specifically. Uh, there we're told, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very, very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So to sum it up, God has given us gifts which we're to use to serve one another in the church. We're not to bury them. We're not to use them for our own uh, personal uh, advantage and not for the good of the body. But we're to use those gifts in such a way, relying on God's strength, that God will get the glory rather than us. And yet at the same time, it's also true that God honours his servants for what they do. God honours his servants for what they do, uh, which is an amazing truth. At the end of the day, as Jesus says, we are simply unworthy servants. All uh, the most we could ever do is our duty. But God honours his servants. The full names of the four giant slayers are listed here. Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Sibachai, the Hushathite, Elhanan, the son of Jar, and Jonathan, the son of Shimei. Is that not a, a mini rule of honour? Is that not God honouring them? We see the same thing in the New Testament. In the last chapter of Romans, Paul mentions Aquila and Priscilla. He calls them his fellow workers in Christ who risked their necks for his life. I wonder if the Apostle Paul had come and visited Stranraer for a while and uh, been part of the, the church here uh, and he, he was writing a letter to us from his next location would there be areas of our service that he might highlight and surely we should be serving in such a way that that would be the case 
surely there should be actual things we are doing that are, that are worth being commended for. Surely we would want to be those who contribute in tangible ways that, that someone could write down in black and white, uh, rather than simply being here in body. And if the Apostle Paul recognised people's service, surely we should as well. In fact, it's not just Paul. Jesus said to his disciples, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. The same Bible that gives all the glory to God also gives recognition and reward to God's servants. The same Bible that gives all the glory to God also gives recognition and reward to God's servants. I wonder, are we slower to do that? Maybe we worry that we'll inflate someone's pride. Perhaps cultural reasons stop us from recognising and honouring people's service. But when culture and the Bible come into conflict, the Bible has to win every time. Because God's word says to us, honour those to whom honour is due. Honour those to whom honour is due. God equips his servants to fight in his battles. And if you're a Christian, he has equipped you. Your work for God may not be spectacular. It may not be noticed by many. It might even be overlooked by many in the church, but he notices it. I'm currently reading the autobiography of Jeff Thomas. Uh, He's a godly minister. He's nearly 90 now. He was pastor of Aberystwyth Baptist Church for 50 years. And he, he talks there about the change that he has seen for the better in North Wales in the past five decades. He says that, that, that in the past, if there was a revival happening in a Welsh congregation somewhere, people in Brazil and Finland would hear about it within a month, uh, and plane loads of people would soon be visiting that church. But, he says, we do not see that today. It has not been God's way. But what we do see, he says, is thousands of anonymous followers of Christ instructing their children in the scriptures, worshipping in Bible-believing congregations, reading Christian magazines, attending conferences and camps, visiting Christian websites, praying for one another, grieving over the drug culture, the collapse of marriage and the irrelevance of so many pulpits. And yet finding assurance that over wheels the Lord Jesus Christ is reigning and is building his church. That's amazing. Thousands of anonymous followers of Christ instructing their children in the scriptures and worshipping in Bible-believing congregations. Anonymous to the world. Anonymous to many of their fellow believers around the world. We haven't heard of these Welsh believers in Stranraer, but but they're, they're not anonymous to God. God sees them and he gives honour to whom honour is due. God notices. Think even of of God speaking to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? And who knows whether God is saying the same thing about any of us. Have you considered my servant? God notices. So firstly tonight God equips his servants to fight his battles. Secondly, God keeps his promises and silences his enemies. 
God keeps his promises and silences his enemies. If you've been a Christian for a long time, and particularly if you've been plodding on in one area of service to Christ without seeing much fruit, one of the exhortations of Scripture that you may need to keep coming back to is the exhortation, do not grow weary in doing good. That command appears a couple of times in Scripture actually, which suggests that that we need to hear it more than once. But how can you do that? How can you stop growing weary in doing good if you're doing the same thing week in, week out, without seeing much visible fruit? Well, you'll only be able to do it if you let the promises of God sustain you. Even if things look bleak and discouraging, hold on to the promises of God. And remind yourself of the promises of God that have already been fulfilled. We see one such promise being fulfilled in these verses. Way back in 2 Samuel 3.18, we're told of God's promise about David. By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That was a long time ago. What do we have here in verse 15? We've war again between the Philistines and Israel. But because of God's promise way back then, there can be no doubt about the result. And so in verse 17, the first Philistine giant is killed. Then in verse 18, there's war again with the Philistines and a second giant is struck down. In verse 19, there's war again with the Philistines and a third giant bites the dust. And in verse 20, there is war at Gath. Uh, Gath being one of five key Philistine cities. And the fourth and final giant is struck down there. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And one of the things that I find particularly encouraging here is that God keeps his promises despite the weakness of his servant. God keeps his promises despite the weakness of his servant. In verse 15, David is weary. Perhaps through getting older, as I said last week, we're not exactly sure, we're not told exactly where these four final chapters of 2 Samuel fit into the timeline. Uh, Some think they they were much earlier in David's reign. Uh, uh, But maybe this is David towards the end of his life, it could well be. Or he might simply be exhausted from from all the battles. He could be on on the verge of burnout, we might say. And yet despite the exhaustion of God's servant, God keeps his promises. Perhaps we we feel that that if some of us had to take a step back or, or take some time out, that God's purposes would be thwarted. But as someone once said, God can send us off to bed like little children and his kingdom will still grow. God can send us off to bed like little children and his kingdom will still grow. God kept his promises in these verses. And he will keep his promises today despite the size of our enemies and despite our weakness. Salvation means we are set free to serve God knowing he doesn't need us. And yet knowing that that he graciously will use us. And so let his promises sustain you. Let his promises sustain you. 
Something else which will help you not grow weary in doing good is a reminder here that God silences his enemies. God silences his enemies. Just like we might, might switch our phone on silent, it, it takes no effort to put a phone on silent. So God, without any effort, can silence the, the loudest of his enemies. So we have Goliath's brother in this chapter, but we also have someone who talks like Goliath. We're not told his name in verse 20, but this 12-fingered and 12-toed giant talks like Goliath. We're told in verse 21 that he taunted Israel. The word means defy, it means mock, it means deride. It's the same word used repeatedly of Goliath and his derision of Israel and Israel's God back in 1 Samuel 17. Boys and girls, can you work out how many total fingers and toes someone would have if they had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot? Uh, well, you can tell me at the end uh, what you think that would be if you six add six add six add six. But this giant's his problem isn't that he's got too many fingers and toes. His problem isn't with his fingers and toes. His problem is with his tongue. He's only got one tongue, but that's the problem. And he should have known better. Years before, Goliath had come out with the same trash talk about God and he had been silenced. And this Philistine is no different. How many people are there in our day who trash talk God and trash talk the church? And yet one day every tongue will be silenced. Just like we could press the mute button on the TV if we don't want to hear someone. One day every tongue will be silenced. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that raises against you in judgment. In fact, Philippians 2 tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will not be silent, but will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we pray that that happens in this life. That scoffers will be converted. That like the Apostle Paul, those who once blasphemed the name of Christ will praise it instead. The people walking round our streets this evening taking Jesus' name in vain will one day praise the name of Jesus. But either way, one day all scoffing will be silenced. And so, beloved, do not grow weary in doing good because God will keep his promises and one day soon those who rage against Christ and his church will be silenced. So just keep going a little while longer. God equips his servants to fight his battles. God keeps his promises and silences his, his enemies. Thirdly and finally, God has a king who will not grow weary. God has a king who will not grow weary. In these verses, David is both like and unlike the Lord Jesus Christ. He's like the Lord Jesus in that the nation's hopes are completely bound up with him. After Ishbi Benob nearly kills David, his men say to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Uh, J.P. Struthers once said that if David had lived in Greenock, people wouldn't have put it so nicely. But instead, they would have said to him, You put yourself at the heat of the army. Man, you can hardly stand on your own two feet. So to think about David here as a lamp of Israel, it's not just a nice flowery way to, to say, David, David, maybe you should think about taking a step back. 
It's actually a, a true description of his role and his importance. To talk about a nation's lamp being quenched is to talk about them being snuffed out. It's to talk about them, a nation ceasing to exist if their lamp goes out. In a way, that had been what had been at stake when David fought Goliath even before he was king. Goliath had said that whoever won the contest, their nation would serve the other nation. So whether David beat Goliath way back then, it didn't just mean success or failure for, for the individual, but success or failure for the nation. And that's even more the case now that David is king. And now that God has made a covenant with him. For David himself, any resemblance he had to a lamp was simply in reflecting the light of God. Uh, the men here say to David that you're the lamp of Israel. But, but if you run your eye down uh, the next chapter, chapter 22, verse 29, David will say, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and God lightens my darkness. Uh, this, the same thing, uh, really, that he says in Psalm 18, uh, which we sing as the Lord will light my candle. So uh, David, he speaks to God and he says, for you are my lamp. So yes, David is a lamp, but his light is a reflected light, as is ours. And that's why we, we need to keep coming to the word, because it is the source of our light. The language of the king being a lamp to the people is carried on in the kings which follow David. For example, 1 Kings 15, 4. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. The description of a lamp it's used for the Messiah, for God's anointed, in Psalm 132, 17. Jesus, of course, described himself as the light of the world. And we're told in Revelation 22.5 that in heaven we will have no need of light of lamp or sun for the Lord God himself will be our light. And so to call David the lamp of Israel points us forward to the true and better David, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons that, that Jesus is the true and better David is because Jesus, unlike David, will not grow weary. Compare verse 15 here with Isaiah 40, 28. Verse 15, and David grew weary. Then we have Isaiah 40, 28. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. When he took on our flesh, the Lord Jesus, of course, could grow weary. He could become tired. Uh, what amazing condescension. But as the eternal Son of God, he never grows weary. We do grow weary in our service of God at times. Sometimes it's simply the physical weariness. It may be exhausted at the end of a Lord's Day especially if it's been a hospitality or, or a church lunch or, or at the end of a go team week. Uh, we've just been going and going and going and we're exhausted. Sometimes we grow weary spiritually as well. Uh, we, we do grow weary in doing good. But not so the Lord Jesus. And he is the one who will keep his promise to build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He will not grow weary. 
And our greatest need is simply to keep looking to him. Amen. Well, we'll close by singing David's own testimony that the Lord is the one who lights his lamp. Uh, Singing Psalm 18, verses 24 to 29 on page 29. Page 29, Psalm 18, verses 24 over to 29. So in the church, is it us who serves? Is Is it God? Is it a bit of both? Well, we serve in the strength he supplies and he gets the glory. Uh, and we see that here in almost every verse. Verse 24, afflicted people, you will save. You light my lamp. Verse 25, by you a troop of men I charge. By my God assisting me I leap over a wall. There's no defeatism here, but simply stepping out in faith, knowing that our power to do anything comes from God. Over the page in verse 27, it's he who clothes us with strength and makes our way perfect. In verse 28, he's the one who makes our feet sure and trains our arms to bend a bow of bronze. And in verse 29, it's his right hand that holds us up and his kindness that makes us grow. All things that that we do, uh, but all things that ultimately he does through us. So 24 to 29, if you're able, we'll stand as we sing.